everyone. Welcome to the Music Tech Jam podcast. Um, this was initially meant to be an event on the 7th of April, but due to the COVID crisis, we had to repurpose this as a podcast. First off, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Adiva Madwig Buna. I am the founder of a creative coding studio called Anim Sessions, which is all about exploring ideas within music and tech. Um, my work in this area has spanned across a couple of things like app development, music production and participating in music industry hackathons. And in my spare time, I also DJ and I'm a massive music tech nerd. So a few years ago, I met a guy called Mark Martin. Now Mark is a massive champion for diversity within the UK tech industry. And he's also the co-founder of an organization called UK Black Tech, which have done some incredible work in that area. And last year, he invited me to present some of my work at an innovation showcase he was running in the city. And following that, we would always have random chats about music production and tech. So we met up one day at a cafe in King's Cross, and we started chatting about how London is a hub with lots of producers, DJs, coders, and tech professionals who love music. And we decided to create Music Tech Jam with the aim of facilitating knowledge sharing and allowing people to create connections. And although we can't do this physically due to the current climate that we're in, it's still important to have that element of knowledge sharing. So Mark is unwell at the moment and he's recovering and he's um, not able to join us on the podcast today. But that said, um, I spoke to three extremely talented individuals about their journey in music tech and they all play very different roles in this industry. Now, and I hope you enjoy this and just a little disclaimer, this is actually my first attempt at producing a podcast and for the most part, it's been done remotely. So the sound quality isn't studio quality. Also, as you might have noticed, I have a very relaxing voice and you might be tempted to doze off, but I hope you don't do that. Hope you gain something from this and I hope you share this with your friends. everyone uh, our first guest on today's podcast is Toby Dunn or T Dunn and he works as a engineer at Mixcloud focusing mainly on data related problems his interests include machine learning big data and distributed computing outside of work he co-runs and DJs at his club night called Obscure which promotes UK garage and other assorted underground sounds so welcome to the podcast Toby I do, but thanks for having me. Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I guess I found out about you through Mark, and um, yeah. I just thought it was really interesting to kind of discover like another techie who's working at a music tech company. I think Mixcloud has mm. been around for about ten years now. Is it? Yeah, we actually recently just celebrated our ten-year anniversary, so it's more or less ten years to the the day yeah, or month. Yeah, I have a bit of history with the platform. Um, I started using it around the time when SoundCloud was doing a lot of censoring around DJ mixes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we just had to kind of, you know, find another outlet and MixCloud was there. And yeah, that's when I... Yeah, did. we're pretty covered for all that stuff. I actually, um, yeah, a lot of the kind of reporting stuff to do with that licensing was what I kind of mainly worked on for about the past year, to be honest. Nice, nice. Yeah, we're going to get into that shortly, but um, I just also wanted to kind of understand what sparked your interest in tech. I'm not really sure, to be honest. I always kind of enjoyed just like tinkering with things and, you know, seeing how things work, like taking stuff apart. Like, I remember when I was like really young, like it's like really vivid memory of me like in the garden like taking apart like a microwave much to like my mum's dismay <laughs> she just like found me like dismantling this microwave <laughs> so I don't know I've always just had a curiosity for how things work and I think kind of when I was going through school and like got my hands on a on a computer that was kind of like the natural progression to that I was just curious how computers worked and then that kind of led to me reading some stuff on the internet and then I kind of 
think yeah, I started using Linux and then I was curious to how that worked and that led me to start learning C because um, that's what it was all written in and then it kind of just went from there really. Um, nice. It's just a general kind of curiosity. with and Kind of just progression as time went along. Yeah, it wasn't like a kind of snap thing. One day I kind of woke up and was like, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to do this. But it was mm-hmm. kind of, it just always kind of felt right, you know. That kind of leads me to my next question, which is around, you know, your day-to-day role. People always talk about data and, you know, we even use phrases in the tech industry like data is king, data is oil, all of that stuff. But, you know, on a day-to-day basis, what does a data engineer actually do and what languages do you use in your role? Well, I pretty much, well, in Mixcloud, pretty much solely use Python or SQL. I mean, if, if you count it as counting query languages. Um, so, yeah, I pretty much do solely back-end stuff. I don't really touch any, any front-end or only when they kind of let me near it, which is not very often. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that kind of, so like, like you said, I'm a, I'm a data engineer, so that kind of entails, like I was mentioning earlier, doing a lot of stuff with the reporting work. So to get all this, to ensure that Mixcloud is a fully kind of licensed platform. Um, you kind of need a technical implementation of the legal stuff, which is in effectively fingerprinting, you know, almost every, well, everything that's on the platform and just saying what's been played where, so you can basically re- report to the record labels what um, content's being played on the platform and make sure the royalties are paid, the licenses are paid for those tracks. So, yeah, we use Python for all that stuff. So it's a lot of kind of, well, Python and a lot of kind of frameworks within python and externally and it's i mean it's a good language for that stuff because it doesn't really need to be particularly fast because all of the heavy lifting is done by things like you know spark or BigQuery. so it's kind of nice quite a nice language for doing stuff in a distributed manner so a lot of my work in that sense involved building kind of data pipelines to extract data transform data and kind of get meaningful results out of it um so we kind of have these big reporting pipelines that run daily or monthly or weekly depending on how, on how often the data is needed which will kind of you know run overnight and spit out all these these results and then we don't have to worry about it um yeah i mean in terms of reporting that's kind of how it works in terms of the actual site that's written in django uh the back ends in django and yeah my kind of data work in that kind of more revolves around kind of analytics stuff so how do you kind of uh you know track certain things and like work out certain patterns um with like behavior on the site and stuff like that and how you can use that data afterwards cool so yeah you mentioned something about kind of licensing and that's such a big problem to solve kind of within music and i'm just trying to imagine Mm. what it looks like in terms of taking in lots of different catalogs from different sources and trying to figure out that so would you say what would you say is the most challenging part of that process or even trying to build something like mixcloud where there's so many tracks and so many djs creating mixes i mean different versions and such i mean this is kind of it you've just you kind of answered it because I mean, there's there's so many tracks that are released on so many different labels under different, you know, something that might be licensed in the UK for under one label is licensed in, you know, France completely differently or something like that. So there's all these kind of intricacies and it's it really is a complete minefield, to be honest with you. Like, it's very kind of difficult to navigate. And, you know, you have something named as like a dub version and like your fingerprinting system thinks it's like the actual vocal tracks you're getting billed for that. And like, there's all, it's kind of like a lot of the stuff you have to deal with is trade-offs. You have to kind of like get it to a certain level of accuracy where kind of everyone's happy because it's kind of, you know, it's no, none of these systems are kind of completely watertight, especially when you're dealing with like, you know, millions of um, hours of content, like being streamed and all of this stuff. Like it's a very kind of difficult, problem to to solve and well to solve one and two to get watertight which is just kind of mm. basically impossible <laughs> but you um, think that um ai might be able to like play a role in solving that problem i think i think there are like some smaller services that do mm. kind of ai 
um, but like bespoke solutions for different problems. But you think that integrating some idea of that into the current Mixcloud setup might solve some? Yeah, it's. I've, I actually I did. I wrote some. Um, I wrote kind of like some machine learning uh, sections of the pipeline to kind of basically try and mitigate some of these problems. Because like I was explaining earlier, I don't know, you might have like a, a Barrington Levy track or something that they, they spelt it in Patois or something like that. And like, you know, then it's another place they spelt it in English. So like, it's, and, but to a human, you can tell that that's the same track. But, you know, to, when, when it goes through the system, it just thinks it's completely different and you end up getting billed twice for it. So it's kind of those kind of things that you want to basically mitigate. So yeah, I have machine learning in, does help a lot in in those kind of uh, in those instances, and yeah, we found that you know we could reduce those kind of uh, I guess those splits quite a lot when we when we used it. So it was kind of like you know text matching and stuff like that, and you kind of set a a reasonable threshold to what you think um, how close they should be. So you, yeah. you set some threshold, and then you just see what you basically have to see what the results are like. It's quite a lot of kind of iterative trial and error, really. I think the most interesting thing that I'm trying to imagine about your role is that it's so involved with music. And I guess, um, for example, you're able to identify like specific kind of songs. And I think that I just feel like that's quite fun compared to maybe a developer who's working in finance and really, really, well, for me, boring, but for some other people, really interesting. Um, But like looking at different, maybe kind of like cryptocurrencies um but yeah i'm just kind of wondering what has been like the biggest highlight of your experience at mixcloud biggest highlight um i think it's it's like you say to be honest it's the general you know before i've kind of worked in in companies where i mean to be frank with you i don't haven't really cared so much about the end product like yeah you care about the quality of the work you do but the actual end product is like something which i'm just not in a field that I'm not really that interested in Rosa music is something that's you know like my biggest passion and like like you say like you know I just like I'm looking through like a sheet of data or something I just see some track I recognize and you kind of smile to yourself you're like oh, yeah, I know this tune <laughs> it's like when it's kind of so like fine-grained and like a part of your work I think that that kind of general feeling of just being in amongst uh, two things that you really love is I guess the highlight um that kind of leads me to DJing because that's another thing that you do. And I, I also do that um, is really interesting. And I just wanted to find out how you got into that, especially because you, you say you do kind of just garage mostly. And these days I feel like lots of people are more into like hip hop and like drill, say like newer genres. So how is it running a garage night in this age? Well, it's, it started it in 2011 and yeah it's kind of my my friend george started it and kind of i joined a bit later and we we basically started just yeah promoting uk garage something that we've both always like really been into just it's just one of those things we're just both really into it and but as time gone on to be, time's gone on it's not really exclusively like a kind of garage night anymore okay um like we've kind of like hosted like a quite a wide variety of artists like you know house like dance hall like such like a wide range of stuff it's kind of it's kind of come to encompass a lot more than that but it always kind of has had we it's, it was born out of a passion for uk garage and that's always been like a very strong theme in it um it's also interesting you say because it lit about kind of newer genres and stuff but in the past kind of two years I can't remember a time when Garage has ever been kind of popping off as much as it is now. There's like, there's so many new producers. There's like, there's this whole new wave of just new Garage, which is just kind of just absolutely nuts. Can you, um, can you name drop a few people so, so I can do some research after? Yeah. Um, Dr. Banana, he's doing quite a lot of stuff. I, I DJed on his Rinch show the other day. Um, he's like basically started off as like a reissue, reissue label reissuing like kind of all these old garage bits which are just like either ludicrously expensive now or just you know just i think with the idea of basically just getting stuff uh back into the club um shuffle and swing they're a really like great little collective who've just kind of were basically born out of like a facebook group for people who wanted to share 
tracks with each other and like me and my me and my mate George who run obscure like got added into this group and we were just like wow like there's so many other people who are like who are into this kind of new sound like this is crazy and and that's kind of really like a focal point of this of this scene but there's like there's so many high rise is another good wicked new producer um there's like loads of people just doing like incredible stuff and yeah i don't know it's a really it's a really good time to be to kind of still putting on nights and stuff like this i mean obviously not now given the situation it was um but yeah i mean it's it's always i mean my music interests are much broader than just garage music but it kind of started off as um as, as uk garage and kind of evolved from there i mean to be honest with you nowadays like most of the music i listen to or yeah, most of the music I listen to at home is usually dub, reggae. I mean, I still listen to garage and like house music and stuff like that, but it's kind of quite a big wide mix. I wouldn't say I pigeonhole too much nowadays. What's like your, um, your home setup? What does that look like? If you could visualize that for the listeners. My home setup is actually hasn't changed since I started DJing. I'm really kind of like, I guess, slow to kind of adapt to things. So I've got, I've got a pair of, Technics nice. and just an old Pioneer mixer, which I'm currently in the process of replacing because it's completely battered. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't always play vinyl. I mean, to be honest, like whenever I've played abroad and stuff, I've kind of usually avoided it and just taken digital because, I mean, one, taking it on a plane is a bit long and two, like... Kind of long. Yeah, you don't really want to get to a foreign country and then find that like, the setups like mash up and you can't really, do you know what I mean? It kind of, it reflects badly on you, even though it's not your fault because everyone yeah. in the audience is like, oh, like, you know, the needle's skipping all over the place or whatever. <laughs> when in reality, it's just <laughs> the setups mash up. So, yeah, I kind of just, just mix with vinyl at home. And then if I'm playing in the club, kind of a mix between vinyl, USBs or just both. Um, yeah. And, yeah, that's pretty much it. Cool. So to just round things off today, you've been talking about, you know, two specific things in this area of, you know, coding and applying that to a big platform for the music. And we've also kind of gone in a different direction and talked about DJing and, you know, running club nights and home setups and all of those things. And I wanted to understand from your point of view, if you think that there are any transferable skills between coding and DJing because I often get this question when I'm talking to people um, and I try and you know explain a few of these things I think I think there's definitely transferable skills I mean to be honest just the inherent fact that they're two things whereas by kind of virtue of what they are you have to kind of focus very hard on something and like I mean in the in and then kind of progress progressed it so with DJing for example like you're always digging for tunes like you know I don't know how many hours I've spent just like on discogs or YouTube, whatever, just like, you know, just ending up in these holes of like random record labels, whatever, which or in record shops and you're just kind of digging for all these tunes. So I think it's that kind of inherent drive, which you have to have. Uh, and with coding, it's the same. Cause, I mean, you know, like you have to kind of have that real focus and you find there's something going wrong in your code and you don't know what it is. And you have to sit there and like dig around for about three, four hours to find out what's happening um and then it's a missing space and everyone yeah knows. exactly or like you know <laughs> and you've lost three hours and you're just yeah yeah but i mean it's that kind of i guess it's that kind of sense of you get that sense of um i don't know it's almost a sense of like achievement like you know oh you're God. kind of you're showcasing something or like in defense of dj and you're kind of like showcasing something which you think people might not have heard or in like programming like you're you've been digging for something for so long and eventually you found the answer to it. And like, it's kind of like this holy grail that you found. So it's kind of, there definitely are transferable skills. I'd say on like a surface level, that's definitely the most, uh, most obvious one. Like just, you kind of just have to, you know, have that real, <laughs> I guess almost like kind of nerdy-ish kind of drive to like want to like go deeper into stuff, which is definitely, a, I think, features in both. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely agree. I think, yeah, it's also like, yeah, finding the time and the commitment and even just trying to understand new concepts 
because I think we, you always have to keep investing in your skills in both areas. So with DJing, like practicing coding, always trying to keep up to date with new libraries or new frameworks and things like that. Um, but yeah, this has been a really interesting conversation. I want to say thanks again. And hopefully I'll get to meet you in person because we, we've never actually met up in person. <laughs> <laughs> and who you're meant to meet. Rona, Rona sorted that. Yeah, yeah, the Rona just kind of killed that. But hopefully we'll, um, we'll get to meet up and maybe you can meet other members of the community. Um, we're hoping for a quarter three, most likely. <laughs> quarter three events, but we'll see how yeah. that goes. But yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I look forward to it. Awesome. So our next guest, TaylorMade, is a DC native. She's a DJ, producer, engineer, who's made her home in London and has firmly established herself as an in-demand tastemaker with an extensive resume of sets ranging from Boiler Room, Love Box Festival, Converse, and Ministry of Sound to international dates in Berlin, NYC, and Geneva. She specializes in hip hop and underground club sounds, including trap, Jersey Club, and Future Beats. Taylor has also solidified herself as a pioneer of Future Club sounds with monthly radio shows on Foundation FM and Kiki and her quarterly East London Club Night Vibrate. So welcome to the podcast, Taylor. Thank you for having me. I'm happy we could make it happen. Yes, finally. Yeah, that was a very long intro. Um, and there's so many cool <laughs> so many cool things in the bio. And um, I guess the first thing I want wanted to really get into is your musical journey because you wear so many hats and I'm trying to kind of gauge how it started. So did you start with the DJing? Did you start with the producing? How did it kind of begin for you? Um I, I guess technically it started with DJing because I started DJing when I was about twelve years old. Nice and I always had an interest in music. Like my grandfather was a arranger and composer for Motown. So like when I was super, super young, I'd be in the base, his basement in Detroit and he had the pianos and the saxophones and all that stuff. So me and my brother would always be down there playing instruments and everything. But yeah, so when I was 12, um, I started DJing and um, I fell in love in it, with it, even though I had no idea what I was doing. Like it was, and this was a long time ago. Like decks were very different to what they are now, so it's really rudimentary. But um, yeah, it started there. I've always had a love for music, and um, just kind of progressed. I sang in chorus and things throughout school. Um, I got into producing a bit more. Um, I kind of dabbled in it throughout life. I, I'm. I vaguely remember my parents getting me some kind of kid's version of a production software. Nice. So I toyed with that a little bit when I was younger, but um, it probably wasn't until I got to college that I, I really started playing with DAWs like Logic and GarageBand and then into Ableton and, 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 and software, like, you know, the more legit softwares like that. Cool. So, yeah, you, you kind of touched on the software that you use for production now. Um, but what do you currently use for DJing in terms of like arranging your music and getting it ready for sets or managing that and so on? Um, now I use um, I use Rekordbox now because I primarily play off the USB sticks. Uh, when I first I remember when Serato first came out, I started I started playing on CDs and vinyl, at, meaning compact discs and vinyl. Um, fell in love. Back in the day. Know, back, back in the day. But um, I was so excited when Serato came out because it meant I didn't have to like carry these, you know, these records or these, you know, CD cases of mixed CDs. Um, so Serato was really kind of revolutionary for me. It also allowed me to play, you know, my, my setup would be broken down at different times. So sometimes I would be playing with the one working CDJ and the one working turntable. Mm -hmm. So Serato really helped me be able to um, use those setups um, earlier on um, and then over the past couple of years I've moved on to Rekordbox because it's just the most 
practical, most economical option. Yeah. As a DJ, where do you sit in between the controller versus CDJ debate? (laughs) Controller DJs are not DJs and CDJs are like the holy grail. Like where where do you fit in that conversation? Honestly, I'm kind of like the... And with most things, I'm like, if it if it gets the job done and you're making people happy, like, it I don't I don't it doesn't matter to me. Like, it does does it make a crowd a crowd cringe if somebody shows up to a gig on their controller and it's not working, and then they have to jump on to the CDJs and some of the mixes sound really rough? <laughs> yeah, that makes the crowd yeah. cringe. So like so like I'm not you know I I think that the role of the DJ is to to create a good experience for everyone around them. So whatever that takes, you make it happen. Um, um, I, I prefer I prefer now working on CDJs with USB sticks because I just feel like it's the most, like the easiest work, workflow. Like it's, the, the, it's the, the method for me where I can not be, you know, focused on a laptop and have my eyes drawn away from the crowd as much. I feel more engaged with the crowd, so it's more fun for me. Um, and I've, you know, as I just had gotten to streamline it a bit more and also become a lot more comfortable with the, you know, the CDJs, the Nexus 2000s, like, like they're, they're fantastic and they can do almost, if not everything that a controller can. So, um, it's just really fun for me, but, um, in the past I played on a controller, like I've got my FX Pioneer, um, FX2 right next to me. Like it's, it's whatever works for you, you know? Or the house parties. Yeah, for the house party. Cool. Um, so apart from DJing and production, I think one of the things that's really interesting about you, and I think really made me want to get you on this interview, was the fact that you're also an engineer. And um, in my world, that word engineer is slightly different. So you think of like software engineer, but in your terms, you yeah. kind of deal with the technical details of making a track sound impeccable. So can you like, because the, the audience listening to this is mostly from tech background and I just wanted to kind of mm. give them an opportunity to understand what that's like so that they kind of, mm. yeah, get that. What would you say engineering in your context is, if, if you could kind of explain that? Um, so like, I guess you, you would think of a beat maker or what people now call music producers as, as the people who creatively put their ideas into a track. Um, and that's a lot, a lot more about creative flow than sounding, like you said, impeccable or sounding clean, you know? Um, so a lot of producers kind of double up as engineers, kind of like me. Um, so I do both phases of that work, but um, there are also many producers that rely on an engineer for the next stage of work that comes in a song. Because what a lot of um, um, producers that don't really have experience with engineering, um, they don't have the knowledge to do the things to, to clean the track, uh, to make it sound good. So the engineering stage is really where um, someone, it, in, from my perspective, comes in to technically make a song a better version of itself. So unless you've got, you know, permission or clear direction from the artist to make kind of more creative or artistic changes in terms of effects you add to the song. Generally, you're just trying to clean up the song, um, make it sound, make it sound full, make it sound big, make it sound wide and things like that. Um, if, I mean, I can get more technical about what some of that means if you want. So in terms of like cleaning up the sound, that would be like using software tools, plugins and whatnot to kind of play with different properties of the sound that was pre-recorded um so absolutely that what you mean essentially yeah so um some of the main things that engine you know audio engineers need to be concerned with are um the levels of the different sounds in a song because every song is made up of tons of different sounds um the, the frequency range of of each individual sound so like if I have a um, a sound that occupies kind of a higher spectrum of frequency range, we don't really want any unnecessary low frequencies included in that sound because that might get in the way of um, 
sounds that are meant to take up low frequencies, like bass. Everybody loves bass in a song. You don't want other sounds crowding that area. You want yeah. the bass to come through clean and hard and smooth. So, so that's where you're kind of carving sounds to sculpt them uh, around each other so that they fit together. Um, there's things like compression, which um, is super important to make um, things like vocals sound consistent when there's varied levels, like volume levels through it. Um, it's also a way to make things kind of sound big and crunchy. Um, we're also concerned with how we send sounds to different sides of the ear and kind of make a song sound like it surrounds you or occupies the space and rather just sounding like it's coming head on. Um, and I mean, one of the crazy things is that I've learned that one of the most important thing that things that an engineer does is just control the different, the volumes of the different tracks. Like that can instantly make your song so much better, even beyond all the super fine tuning type stuff that you got to do. When did you get into the engineering side of things? Um, I think nowadays as a music producer, especially if you're learning online and, you know, with all the technology available and things, you kind of end up getting into a bit of engineering naturally, especially if you're not, you know, signed to a label or have a big deal. You need to, you need to figure out ways to make, make your music work for you. Yeah. Um, so I ended up studying audio engineering at SAE Institute in London, the School of Audio Engineering. So I got my degree in audio engineering there. And so that's really where I got to, you know, use the mixing desk, learn the theory, um, learn the techniques and all of that. Um, and from there, I was able to input the, you know, what I learned there into my work um, as a musician, but also take what I learned about recording and recording artists into the studio to record a range of different kinds of artists, rappers, singers, et cetera. And all that. Yeah, it's quite interesting, I guess, the mastering and mixing part of it, because I feel like in terms of the music tech industry, I've seen some solutions which mm. say that they can do this out of the box for you. So they say, upload your track and then yep. we'll get everything done. And I've done that yep. before when I've made like little remixes here and there. And it sounds, yeah. sometimes it sounds great, sometimes it sounds horrible. So what do you feel about, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like it just takes out everything completely. Um, but what mm. do you feel about things like that, like solutions like that, which try and use software to automate away some of these skills that you've spent, you know, hours acquiring and so on? Um, it's, I think, I mean, that's kind of the part of the game of technology, right? We're always trying to find ways to make things easier for ourselves as humans. That's part of how, like, you know, we progress. <laughs> but um, I think that, that, there's there I think there will often or always be a um a desire to incorporate humanity into the technical things that we're doing so um but I also think that tools like lander so that's um I think maybe one of the platforms you're talking about that can master your track using an algorithm um like tools like that are really really useful um I've used lander um, I think it can be really useful when you're working on a track and you're, you, you've got a demo done and you're happy with the mix down, but you want to test it out in a club and you don't have to pay to get it mastered if you're not, if you're not sure about the mix. So you throw it in land or you pay, pay a few pounds, you show up to the club, you test the track out, you notice, oh, this, this could, this level could come down in the mix, this could change a little bit. And then you can take it back and, and change it or ask your mixing engineer to, um, um to um to to make the changes accordingly you know um but yeah i i i think i think they're useful i think that um those tools are great um but i also think that there is you know there is there's big benefit to having a person in the studio with you sometimes a lot of um i work out of a studio in hackney wick and when we're recording ourselves or recording artists, uh, one of the things that they love to come away with is just a, a mix that's done and maybe even the song that's mastered after that, just that one session. Mm -hmm. And with them being able to be in the session and add their input, they can kind of guide the mixing engineer's ac actions to ensure that it sounds just the way they want. 
And um, that's one of the benefits that a lot of higher level artists have. Um, so I think I think that's one of the one of the things that's that's beneficial about having an actual engineer in the studio with you if you can. Yeah, I definitely I definitely agree. And even in times like this with COVID, um, even having mm. an element of a virtual process in which like an artist and an engineer can sit together and listen to the songs because I guess in this in this day and age it's not going to happen in person um I think that's yeah. why we tend to have everyone kind of there as part of the process um, absolutely another thing I wanted to touch on is kind of like around production and new tools coming out in in that yeah. area so I I've dabbled in production before I would class myself as a bedroom producer like baby remix maker that kind of thing i've heard your stuff um, is good what do you mean it's good <laughs> but i don't put out a lot of stuff so i guess and i haven't really released a lot of stuff so i think in that sense um but the second time i tried my hand at, at production uh, i used i started using splice because i found that i could just find oh. like lots of sound packs on splice and i could kind of pick and do and just get get everything from there if, if you're if you're not familiar with splice um if you're listening splice is like spotify before um sounds which producers can kind of get along with what do you feel about these new platforms in terms of like you know beat makers versus producers um and even like changing how producers approach making tracks in the future um I mean, like I said before, new technologies are always going to come out and kind of change the way that we do things. Like that's just that's just the way the world works, in my mind. Um, I I for one love Splice. Um, I'm a I, I'm a big fan of Splice. I remember um, before before Splice was around, or at least before I was aware of it, you would kind of go on to you know you would scour the internet to try and find samples and try and find beat packs and things. And you might find it off of, you know, you, you might find some, some pirated sounds or you might find um, some websites like Loopmasters or, or things that put together packs that you can actually use the sounds royalty free. But um, it, was, it, was, it was very scattered and oftentimes um, very difficult to, to find what you were looking for sometimes. Splice has revolutionized that in my mind because it's millions and millions of sounds. Uh, it's very, I, I find it pretty rare to, that you won't be able to find the sound that you're looking for. Mm. Um, if you're looking for, you know, a, a type of sample or something like that. The, the ways that like the search functions, the way that you can search for a particular instrument um, and, or a loop by key and BPM and, and, and all of these, and maybe an idea like a mood or, or whatever is, it's, um, it's pretty it's pretty incredible um, also the access to presets that you can use with VSTs is pretty great um, I know that there's there's a de there's always been a debate about you know the, the the purest idea that you need to be at the you need to have created the root of every sound that you that you throw into the song um, and and personally that I felt I feel like that held me back a lot in my production early on because I was too focused on that, on that idea as someone who's just learning to produce. So I'm sitting here with these VSDs, VSTs trying to understand sound design to create sounds in my head and blah, and all this kind of stuff. And that, that's like, we have to, I feel like we have to remember that music, making music is something that's creative, yeah. you know, and, and putting rules and limitations on it. That's, that's often something that can kind of, um, uh, get in the way of creativity. Um, I think that Splice is in a way a creativity booster because it streamlines your workflow. It allows you to stay in the vibe, stay in the mood of whatever you're doing and work quicker. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't think that there's use in knowing how to, um, understanding sound design, knowing how to create your own sounds, taking times to create your own loops and not always just using the ones on Splice. But um, I think at the end of the day, it's really up to how you work. Me personally, as an overthinker, and I know a lot of producers are, but as an overthinker, I want to be able to work quick. I don't want to overthink my actions. I want to find sounds. If I like them, I'll use them. If I want to create a melody, I'll do it. 
I just want to work that way. But there are other people who really enjoyed tinkering with VST settings and things like that and creating really cool electronic sounds or recording session musicians in the studio, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think the way I think about it is like, uh, (laughs) if like, think about how, think about how humans first created fire. Like it's the same thing when you're in the studio, you want to create fire, like you want to create a stick song, right? Like humans first started creating fire in the woods with sticks and whatever, right? It resulted in fire. Now we got lighters, we got gas (laughs) stoves, whatever. We make fire, we can make it quick. But in my mind, it doesn't matter how you do it. Whatever tools you like, whatever tools you prefer, you utilize those and you just figure out how to make the fire. Definitely. I think, yeah, for me, tech has always been something that enhances the process. And I feel like even with Splice, like you were saying, with people who like to make their own VSTs and tinker with things, this is kind of an opportunity for them to monetize on this platform and maybe create acts of their own. So it, it brings another conversation to mass monetization. Um, absolutely um before the way i would find sounds um was i would i would kind of get these music tech magazines and they'd have like some cd on the top kind of with the with the magazine and then i take that home and try and extract sounds from that and that was like each month so i think <laughs> that's cool yeah it was so it was so long though imagine every month <laughs> for the new edition of audio mastering 101 or something like that um so I think <laughs> this is really cool stuff that's happening. Um, I want to say thank you again for coming on the podcast. And I also wanted to ask, do you have anything you're working on at the moment in terms of new music and how can people kind of connect with you if they want to learn more about your music? And um, yeah, this is just like the time to plug everything. Um, <laughs> say goodbye. That's, man, there's so much. Like I've been, there's so, there's so much music I'm working on. Um, my most recent kind of producer production offering was a remix pack called TaylorMade Edits, which is on SoundCloud right now on my profile, um, uh, backslash TaylorMade. Um, I've got a recent, um, collaboration, uh, with somebody who I work with often based in the UK. Uh, it's a vocal project. Um, and it's called Studio Rats because what am I? I'm a studio rat, right? <laughs> so it's called Studio Rats Volume 1. That's on SoundCloud and on Spotify under um, under uh, another moniker that I, that I operate under called LitSnow. So um, you can find that online. Um, and then I'm working on my next project, pro- project which will be um, a mix of my production and my vocals. It'll be a solo project. Nice. Um, coming out in the fall, I think. I don't know. We're working on it. I'm not yeah. trying to overthink it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's getting really close. I'm so excited. Cool. Okay, definitely. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll definitely include those links with the podcast and people can get access to that. Um, thank you so thank much for your time. And yeah, tailor made, everyone. <laughs> thank you for having me. hope that conversation was interesting and you took away something from that. Um, the theme for this event originally was innovation and ownership and I really wanted to speak to another founder within the music tech space and I met this guy on a Slack group run by YSYS, also known as Your Startup, Your Story. Anyways, his name is Carl Thomas, not the R&B singer Carl Thomas because there is, you know that song, um, you know that one? It was love I know you me. Anyways, our next guest is Carl, and he is an internet of things and wearable technology enthusiast. He's also an enterprise educator and mentor. His background stems from telecoms in the dial-up days. And he has years of experience running internet service providers and IoT projects within that space. He recently left to start what became an award-winning tech company focused on wearables. 
and he also runs the largest and most regular wearable tech event in Europe, where they've hosted the likes of um, Financial Times, Barclays, and Telefonica. So I'd like to welcome Carl to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, thank you for the invite, Eva, and thanks for the intro as well. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I mean, initially I had you on my radar as an audio tech person of interest, and then I discovered you explored a couple of other parts of tech before arriving at music and connectivity. I've done a lot of random stuff. <laughs> That's usually a good thing anyways. Um, so if I was to start at the beginning, what was that initial journey into tech like for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess I fell into it without going into too much detail and without taking, going too far back in terms of my own career trajectory. But I guess I fell into technology when I was a teenager. And I say when I was a teenager, like it was yesterday. Um, I'm a lot older than probably that makes me sound but um when i was 13 my dad set up an internet an internet service provider and this is back in the days when there was no broadband before broadband we were providing dial-up services there was no kind of amazon cloud services so basically setting up an isp meant that we commandeered my my grand's attic and spare bedroom we bought uh, basically a number of different dell tower servers we had the first residential premises in um, the south of the UK that had a physical lease line terminated into it. So we were basically jacked into the internet and we provided it to a range of different um, consumers, small businesses, farms in and around the southwest of the UK. And so that's kind of how I got my start. And I think that was the foundation for a lot of these other random things that I then went off and did in my career post that. That's really cool because I think the internet always has this way of bringing out different possibilities. For me, I started, you know, with like illegal downloads on LimeWire. And then later on, that kind of evolved into different things. And when I got into apps, I started playing with um, wearables, so Android Wear, Google Glass. And I'd really like to hear about your journey in wearables because it's such a big industry of its own and it overlaps with music a lot. Yeah, so with wearable tech, it was kind of an interesting one. So I think, as I said, I had the foundation of technology of telecommunication specifically because of my ISP um, days when I was a teenager. But then with regards to wearables, so I got very interested in headphones specifically and the evolution or potential evolution of headphones to become what we call now hearables. And this is going back to 2011 without telling um, too much of a, a cringeworthy story. I used to use, I used to go to the gym on a regular basis back in the day. And like very, very um, many people, I use music to amp up my performance in the gym. So at the time I was running around with different types of Bluetooth headphones, you know, tethering them to my smartphone and Spotify specifically to listen to my favorite music, my playlists. And I remember there's one time in the gym when I was standing in the mirror, just trying to be um, a bit of a gym monkey, shall we say, with dumbbells, watching myself get bigger, hypothetically. And basically my smartphone was underneath my bench. I was completely oblivious to it because I was just using, I was in my zone, music was amping up my performance. And I remember the music that I was listening to just started to fade away slowly. So I turned around and lo and behold, my smartphone was no longer there. Someone had stolen my smartphone. And it got me really annoyed at the fact that obviously someone had just, you know, just taken it and just gone off with it. But at the same time, I was thinking, well, hold on a minute. Why have I got my smartphone in this environment? All I want is access to my favorite music straight to my ears with nothing in the way. And that kind of got me fascinated by the evolution of headphones and got me on this um, journey to audio wings. But also as well, that got me starting thinking about wearable technology broadly, having sensors or having devices that would actually live in the body that provide some form of um, valuable experience based on what we're doing as, you know, as an activity or even physiologically. Um, and then I guess when I started to think through what that meant from a data privacy perspective or even from um, a system design perspective, I started coming across people who were engineers, designers, developers, entrepreneurs, investors who were all in this space but didn't really have much of an idea of some of these kind of pertinent questions that I had, which then kind of got me thinking more about the macro um, challenges of the technology and also was kind of the, the forerunner to Wearables London, which is obviously that community that you mentioned. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting take because it makes me think about today and how there's this perfect marriage between hardware and software at the consumer level. And sometimes it feels like innovation with headsets and earbuds and massive sound systems are kind of taken for granted mm. because now we're talking about streaming a lot. Absolutely. And yeah, I understand why everyone is kind of excited about streaming because it's in our homes now. I mean, if you had to look at 
all of the huge investments that companies like Amazon have made with the Echo and Apple with the HomePod and even Spotify and the partnerships that they've kind of made, as well as, you know, the rumors of them starting their own, speak, um, creating their own speaker. What do you think that future of smart devices and consumption looks like? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think if you look at the smart speaker landscape currently, I mean, it's pretty much dominated by the big players, you know, the, what they call it, the FANG. Um, so specifically, obviously, Amazon, Google, and to an extent, Apple. But ultimately, with the majority of them, probably Apple aside, it's really about trying to understand you, to acquire data about you, to then obviously continue making you the product, but then obviously provide you with further services that could be a benefit. I mean, music, music in, in itself is almost technology in the sense that there's a number of people who use it to improve or increase some form of um, their environment or their, their kind of their scenario, their event that they're taking, place, taking part in right now. So I think from that perspective, if music's a technology, I mean, just to kind of clarify that point a bit more, um, when we look at it from a health perspective, there's um, a study which is conducted by the World Health Organization a couple of years ago, which suggested that 63% of millennials use music as a treatment to an extent um, of anxiety or depression. So if people are using it to really strive to overcome certain emotional challenges, then in itself, it has a lot of value that it can provide in a health context. And if someone like an Amazon or um, a Google especially can start to understand the benefit and the impact that music has on events and also broadly speaking our lives, then they can start to quantify us in a much more granular level. So that then gives them the ability to understand us, understand our um, emotional makeups, then start to understand what kinds of other services and maybe even products as well they can provide us that are gonna be relevant to us specifically. So it all comes back down to what's their overarching mandate for developing a smart speaker? What's the reason for trying to, you know, provide us with this, with this experience? And from my perspective, it's pretty much because they know that we are the product and from their perspective, music is a nice loss leader to be able to then provide us with more services that are going to be relevant based on them knowing us around, um, you know, our consumption history and also what we are, uh, the benefit music provides us in our life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the benefits are so amazing at this point in time, especially because this lockdown has kind of, you know, we've seen this spike in DJs creating all kinds of isolation playlists or just TikTok challenges um, evolving. And it's definitely changing behavior because we're kind of indoors for most of the time. So it'll be interesting to see what data-driven like case studies come out as a result of this period. Um, well, this is it. I mean, I think we've obviously come off the back of um, either local national elections um, being influenced massively by um, you know people that are purchasing data and you know purchasing behavioural data on us. We're obviously coming off the back of um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So people are now much more aware. <laughs> In essence, they are being productized for the benefit of large internet companies. And I think a lot more people are now just trying to understand, well, A, what does my data, what's the value of my data specifically? And also B, um, how is it being used and why am I not visible to that? So I think if people are gonna start to um, purchase more devices that are either wearable or at least in intimate environments like our home, our living room, et cetera, and they're doing so knowing that the experience they're getting is basically free or at least very, very cheap. They're going to start to question these data practices. They're going to start to question the reasons, the ethics behind um, the companies that are really starting to acquire this data and hold it and use it in a way which is pretty much, um, you know, not visible to the end user. Yeah, I think it's such a tricky thing overall because it's so easy to get locked in. So in my case, I've been racking up lots of different devices over the past couple of years and I just have them lying around the house. I haven't really used them that much. But personally, I'm quite locked into the Google um, ecosystem. And it's like, you know, every t with every update, you can't really read that privacy policy. You just want to kind of get on with your YouTube music or, you know, with Spotify if there's an update. And um, sometimes they try and make things transparent, but it's just one of those things that you you know, you, you don't really have a lot of control over as an end user. I, I guess I'm similar to you in the sense that, especially with Google, I'm so locked in, they know more about me than I know about myself, right? Mm -hmm. But 
when you start to put devices on your body that people are going to be wearing almost 24 seven, then that's something different. So as an example, um, one of we obviously, as you mentioned in your intro, I run a number of events that are focused on wearable technology. And I remember for one of my first events, I had the chief scientists of the time for Jawbone come down and talk a bit more about what they're doing and the insights that they're gleaning from um, how people are actually using their, um, their Jawbone fits, I think it was called, the, the smart band at the time. Yeah. And what he realized was that people, to an extent, based on how Jawbone had designed not only their marketing, but also designed the actual system itself, people were wearing it in a competitive fashion to try to you know, compete against how many steps they were taking or how many calories they're burning, but they're wearing it for increasing amounts of the day, right? And from that perspective, it meant that Jawbone, as a consumer electronics company, had so much insightful data on people's days in terms of what they were doing, so much so that they could really accurately understand when people were going to the bathroom, going to the toilet, when they were sleeping, et cetera, et cetera. But the challenge is, for a consumer electronics company that's basically hasn't got any kind of relationship with you as a consumer, because I mean, ultimately you buy it from Argos or whatever, and they may get some credit card data 18 months after the transactions made, but ultimately the only data they have from you is obviously what you're giving off at the time. But because they haven't got a relationship with you to understand your, your health condition or understand um, you know, some of the challenges you may have from a medical perspective, but they can then start to see that, for example, against the national average, you may be going to the toilet a lot more than is usual. How do they then start to tell you that, you know what, you should go speak to a doctor? Or why should they even, how do they start to understand, you know, whether they should speak to you about it or whether they should actually pass it direct to a doctor? So this is a real kind of ethical challenge that a number of different consumer electronics companies are having at this moment in time. Those that are acquiring data are getting so much insight of that individual, but they have an ethical challenge as to whether to tell the individual or to tell um, you know, practitioners that are maybe beneficial to the individual or just actually just sit and do nothing, which most people are doing at the moment in time. But at the same time, that data could really be valuable to people around how they live their lives and what they know about themselves. Yeah, I think, I think from this conversation, after this interview, I'm probably going to check all of my streaming apps and see which permissions they have access to. <laughs> Because, yeah, because if you really start to think about it like that, it can really like cause some worry. Um, but overall, to round things up, I definitely understand this need to talk about data privacy, you know, with things like GDPR kind of, you know, being enforced. And I know everyone's tired of GDPR, but, you know, it, it is what it is. It's GDPR. Um, <laughs> but that said, is there any way that people can find out about, you know, the projects that you're working on? and you know, even the wearable tech event that you run? The project that I spent most of my time on, or I spend sorry, most of my time on is really Audio Wings. Yeah. So at Audio Wings, we're creating a platform for smart headphones um, or for headphones sorry, to make them smarter, to really understand physiology and also, and also situational context, what we're doing in the moment, then start to acquire relevant audio that can then help to optimize that. And broadly speaking, I mean, it's about understanding your mood to then give you relevant music to then start to help you move. Um, so we've developed a pair of headphones that uses this platform and we're looking to launch that in the next couple of months. So I think from that perspective, if anyone wants to check it out, then first of all, you know, I'm on Twitter as Carlos the Jackal or Audio Wings is on Twitter. But I mean, yeah, I'm more than happy to have a chat around um, either smart hearables or, or wearable technology or internet things or just broadly speaking technology um, mm -hmm. to anyone who's fascinated or interested in it. Yeah, I definitely like to try out the headphones. Um, so I'll, I'll be like pinging you every week from now until the <laughs> just to see if I, I will can hold try you to that. <laughs> yeah, try any prototypes out as it evolves. But yeah, I'd like to say thank you for coming on the podcast and um, hope everything goes well with that. Well, thanks for having me, Diva. I really appreciate the opportunity. So that's the end guys i hope you enjoyed this and most importantly i hope that you can take something away from this and share this with someone who might benefit from this uh, we've got a few more remote plans for the music tech jam so if you'd like to keep in touch and follow that progress you can follow anim sessions on instagram or sign up to our mailing list at animsessions.com 
you'll also be able to learn about some of the other work that we've done and some of our upcoming projects like immersive attributes that we'll be launching soon and if you'd like to chat or just have a conversation in general feel free to reach out to me on twitter at adiba migrate bruno thank you for listening to the music tech jam podcast <laughs>